Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be an auditor and a CPA, or maybe just how to ask better questions and who doesn't want to know how to do that, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is an award-winning auditor and a certified public accountant with over 25 years of experience. And he's worked in finance, consulting, higher ed, as well as for a multi-billion dollar grocery store chain. Today, Robert Berry is a keynote speaker, a trainer, author, and a dynamic host of several podcasts. And his goal? To help auditors build better relationships by helping them communicate better in the workplace. Robert is a highly rated keynote and general session speaker at top-tier audit conferences, and he is the author of the best-selling book, Ask Better Questions, Get Better Answers, Perform Better Audits, and who doesn't want to perform a better audit? Robert, welcome to Time for Coffee, my friend. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am decaffeinated and ready to go. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm still trying to figure out who you were just talking about because I sounded really good. That's Get out of here. You are so modest. And as I started digging into your background, I mean, you are the real deal. If somebody wants to know what it is like to be a an incredibly successful auditor, this is the place to come to learn. And I know you, again, are way too modest to toot your own horn. Just let me toot it for you because I had no idea that there were and that you would need auditors at some of the places that you've worked, but clearly they needed them. Yeah, some people call us a necessary evil. I don't really like that. I think that's part of what so many of your shows are about. It's helping auditors become more of your friend in the workplace and less of the person that you view as an antagonizer, as somebody who's there to make your job more difficult. You're really there to level up the whole organization. Yeah, but think about this, though. We're all auditors. We audit everything in life. Everybody has that one friend that tells you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. Because like we all have those friends that tell us everything we want to hear. Oh, you look good in that. Oh, you should do this because you can do it. And you have that one friend that's like, maybe you should consider these few things as you go down this road. And that's the friend that you actually cherish the most, but you also hate them the most too, right? Because they they give you that self-reflection sometimes. So it's that love-hate relationship. I actually love those people because I value honesty and directness. And I was just chatting with you ahead of this, the start of our interview here and telling you that I was planning to write a book. And now I'm actually moving in the direction of starting a brand new show, a brand new podcast. And it was a friend who I was explaining my book to who was like, Andrea, there have been so many books that have been written about that. And oh my goodness, that stung. And even though she was right, I still think that the direction I was headed in, headed in was the right one. 
But instead, what I'm doing is I'm reading all those other books that she said have already been written on my subject so that I can be crystal clear when I'm ready to write it. The thing about that is she knows you and she knows what your ultimate goal is. And so she can give you some advice to help you get from point A to point B. And that's all auditors do in organizations. Well, this interview has been years in the making. And I'm thrilled to say, Robert Barry, that you are the very first auditor to grace the T4C airwaves. And before we get into what you are doing now as the president of that audit guy, which has got to be one of the best names for a company, I want to flash back to when you were in school. You got your undergrad degree from Auburn University at Montgomery, where you got a BS in accounting. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated, Rob? Oddly enough, I actually did. Well, I had some idea. Let's put it like that. People laugh when I say this, but I have a degree in accounting, but I hate numbers. I like people. But when I looked at the business world, I had a good understanding that the people who often made decisions were the people who actually understood the numbers. So like my grandmother used to say a couple things to me, but one thing she said to me that was extremely important. She said, if you want to find out what's important to people, look at where they spend their time and their money. So my thought was, if I could figure out the flow of money in any business, I could make myself valuable because that is what would tell me what was important to that business. So I specifically got a degree in accounting, knowing that I was never going to do accounting work. I just wanted to understand how it operated. That was so incredibly smart of you. But math must have been something, even if it wasn't something you loved, it was something that you were good at. Here's the thing. So I actually do love math, but accounting is not math. And that's why I say I hate numbers. If I had to turn back the hands of time, I would have gotten a degree in mathematics with a minor in accounting. Okay, so wait a minute. How is accounting not math? Accounting is really addition and subtraction, multiplication and division. That's it. That's simple math. Really, accounting is figuring out the best way to present your financial statements so that you can lure investors to get money or show Wall Street your results. It's simple math. Whereas when you look at real math, for example, biology is a lot of true math where you're trying to figure out what compound elements to put together to make something new. That's real math. Accounting is not math at all. Thank you for that. I actually never had that perspective. So what was your first job out of school, Rob? And do you remember how you got it? You know what? I'm going to give you a little bonus. I'm going to tell you when I was in school. So I was in college in the 90s. So I was in college in Montgomery, Alabama. And we all know the history in Montgomery, Alabama. So we had this cohort of people in the accounting curriculum there. And it was me and one other black person happened to be a a young lady. And I remember it came close to time for us to graduate and everybody had a job except me. I was hurt because that curriculum was grueling. We had this lady there named Dr. Judith Kamnikar. I'll never forget her. They said that she was the hardest accounting professor in the world. And I believe it. But she and this woman named Dr. Golden, they would send me out on these job interviews and I would never get the job. I remember this one in particular. I had been emailing this gentleman back and forth and we set up a time to interview. He had my resume. He would actually ask me questions via email. He made it sound like it was a shoe in The job was mine. I told him, I said, I don't have a CPA license yet. Is that a requirement? He said, oh, no, the interview is just a formality. I showed up to his office the day of the interview, 20 minutes early. I talked to his assistant, told her who I was, waited out in his lobby. 
Time for the interview came. So I've been sitting there for 20 minutes. Nothing. Five minutes after the hour. Nothing. I go back to his assistant. She peeps her head around the corner and tells me that he's not going to interview me today. So I go back, I email him again, and he tells me that I'm not a right fit for the job. Now, we had been emailing for about a month and a half. I go back and I tell Dr. Golden and Dr. Kamnikar about my experience with this gentleman. And so I don't know what they ended up doing, but they ended up severing ties with him. Now, I don't know why this gentleman had these very good emails with me for about a month and a half. And then when I get to his office, he doesn't want to see me. Well, do we really need to say that? You know, I mean, this sounds like it was flat out racism. I can only speculate because, you know, Montgomery, Alabama. But, but the way I look at things is why push the issue? If you don't want me there, I definitely don't want to be there. So at this point in time, when I was in college, I had three jobs. I was a medical courier on the weekend delivering specimens from point A to point B. I was a teller at a bank. And then I also had a job where I was an after school care person for mentally challenged children and adults. It just so happens I was at the bank, the teller job one day. And this woman walks in and you can tell that she was just lost. She had no idea where she was and what she was doing. And so I'm standing behind the teller line doing my job and I see her. And then I motion to one of the customer service representatives, hey, this lady needs your help. So this customer service representative named Pam goes and gets the lady and they go in Pam's office for what seems like about 20 or 30 minutes. And I'm handling customers. They come out of Pam's office and then all of a sudden, Pam looks at me and tells the lady, I need for you to go see Robert. Now, at this point, there are four tellers on the line and I'm thinking, oh, crap, why does she need to come see me? I'm thinking I had done something. So in my mind, I'm, I'm racking my brain. I'm like, is this a customer? Maybe I messed up something earlier in the week or in the day. Maybe it's an ex-girlfriend that I've forgotten about. Who knows what could have happened, right? So in my mind, I'm, I'm developing a strategy on how not to handle her transaction. This was back in the day when people went into banks and, you know, you had that line that kind of did the snake. So now I'm looking in my window and I have the prison in my window and it usually takes a long time to service them. And I remember it was this little short black lady with these two huge security guards. I decide to slow down counting their money, hoping that this lady will pass and go to another teller. The lady from the prison, she looks at me and she says, Robert, are you OK today? And I say, yes, ma'am. She said, well, normally I come to your line because you're fast and efficient. So now at this point, I'm thinking she's got two big security guards with her with guns. So I better speed up and get back on track. So I look and this young lady is almost through the line. The young lady that Pam wants me to see, she's almost through the line. But I think, OK, I better speed up because these dudes have guns. Before I get her through the window, the young lady that Pam wants me to help is at the front of the line. And so I have this other teller next to me named Wendy who's sitting here asking the lady, hey, ma'am, can I help you? Can I help you? And the lady looks at Wendy and then she looks at me and she says, no, I'm waiting for Robert. So at this point, I'm like, oh, shit, I really am in trouble. I got the prison in front of me and then I got this lady waiting on me. So I speed up and I get the prison lady out. And then this lady bops up to the front of my line and she starts talking to me. She's like, hey, how are you? And I'm thinking, what did I mess up? <laughs> right. But I don't say that to her, you know. She proceeds to tell me that she wants to close out her account. I'm like, well, why do you want to close your account? This is a great bank. So I'm talking to her, right? And she tells me that she was working as an accountant for Winn-Dixie in the Montgomery office. So when dixie was a Fortune 500 company, they had 1,200 locations. They were a $24 billion organization back then. And they had these different divisions that handle certain regions. And she happened to be working at that one. And I said, oh, okay, what were you doing there? And she said, well, I was an accountant in this training program and I've just been promoted and I'm moving to Jacksonville, Florida. I said, what are you going to be doing in Jacksonville, Florida? She said, well, I'm going to be an internal auditor. I had no idea what an internal auditor was. 
I just knew that I needed a job. And so my, as I was handling her transaction, I was talking to her more and more. She seemed like a really nice woman. So towards the end, I asked her, I said, hey, well, listen, since you're leaving, do they need someone to replace you? She said, yeah, let me give you the man's name and number. And so now this was back before we had cell phones, right? So she gave me this man's number. His name was Larry Gordon. After I got her out of my window during my break, I called Larry Gordon and he asked me if I could email him my resume. I emailed him my resume. A few weeks later, I'm sitting in the office being interviewed by Larry and a woman named Suzanne. So after graduation, still didn't hear much from them. It was like four or five days after graduation, they called me up and they said, hey, we want to make you an offer. So that's kind of how I got my first post-graduation job, all because I'm sitting here at my job, doing my job, and I didn't treat it like it was a job I hated. I'm having a good conversation with this woman. I'm trying to help her get through whatever it was that she needed to get through because she had a few issues that we needed to work through and we worked through them. But that job actually helped me get a job. Robert, my mind is blown right now because this to me, and I'm going to be asking you about this later in the interview, but I don't know if I need to, because this to me is a quintessential example of magic. Here it was. It landed right in your lap. Here's what makes it even better. So when you grow up in Montgomery, your life dream is to get the hell away from Montgomery. Some people I know that are still there are going to dispute me on that because a lot of my friends are still there. But people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer would always be gone. But it was hard trying to figure out how to do that because you would have to apply for jobs in another state and city and you don't live there. So why would they hire you? The job actually was to be in Montgomery for about one to three years and then move to Florida. And who wouldn't want to move to Florida? (laughs) Having lived in Miami for two and a half years, I'm with you. This is what I love. You went into this management training program at Windex. You mentioned $24, $25 billion organization. And as someone who lived in the South, at one point I lived in, in South Carolina, I'm super familiar with Winn-Dixie, huge grocery store chain. You landed in their management training program. It was accountant management training. So it played right to your strength. This was like an all-you-can-eat buffet on the accounting side of Winn-Dixie. You were learning about payables, receivables, general ledger, payroll, fixed assets, warehouse activities. Are these all potential types of jobs, Robert, for new grads with accounting degrees? Yeah, it it hit everything. So new grads and accounting degrees, they have a few different routes they can go to. They can go to one of the big four accounting firms where they do what's called financial statement audits. They audit the financial statements of companies or they can become an accountant for a company where normally you start off working in one of these areas. And then you kind of work your way up to an accounting manager or supervisor, or then you work your way up to a controller, and then you work your way up to a CFO. They put me through all of the accounting processes, all of them. I didn't realize back then how powerful that was. You've got a bullet point listed on your LinkedIn profile under the Winn-Dixie experience, and it says that you created worksheets that appropriately fixed a system error for multi-million dollar inventory. And this was during the training program. What did you do? All right. So there were a few things going on at this point in time. So like right now, everybody uses Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets or some kind of spreadsheet. Way back in the day, we had this thing called Lotus 123. And it was the worst thing ever. It wasn't even in Windows. You didn't have a mouse back then. So we were switching from this thing called Lotus to this thing called Microsoft Excel because it was new. 
And in this division that I worked in in Montgomery, we had this warehouse full of inventory and it was hundreds of millions of dollars worth of inventory. We had this computer system that we were using to track it so that we could close our books and say, this is how much we have. It never worked. It was always off. Every month it was off and we spent millions of dollars on this system as a company. So I sat down one day and I told Larry Gordon, I said, man, I think I can fix this in Excel. And he said, okay, go for it. And so I sat down in Excel and I remember, I think Amazon was fairly new back then. I bought myself a couple of books on visual basic programming, taught myself how to do visual basic programming and created these worksheets that balance the inventory for the multi-million dollar inventory. You taught yourself this programming by reading these books and you had just graduated from college. What did Larry think about what you did? Oh, he thought it was awesome. He rolled it out to everybody else in the office. But this is the thing, though. All it takes is a little bit of curiosity. You see a problem, you try to solve a problem, and people like people who solve problems. That is it. I hope that our Java junkies drink in that amazing advice. Follow your curiosity and look to solve problems. It's always good to flag a problem, but it's better to flag a problem and offer the solution. That's why I say everybody's an auditor. Think about your friends that you have. Everybody has that one friend that just drains them emotionally. You have to schedule the day of the week and the time that you're going to talk to that friend so that you can have some wine therapy afterwards. Then you have that other friend that's always bringing you ideas or helping you solve problems or making you feel invigorated. And that's the friend that you're drawn to. Absolutely. You know, I posted about this the other day about surrounding yourself with people who have positive energy. So what did you learn from going through that training program, Robert? And would you recommend that students look for these types of training programs, those who are studying auditing, to kind of sample all the different types of roles that they might be interested in doing? Well, I think I just told you what I learned. I learned solve problems, don't be a problem. I would recommend some sort of program like that for anybody in any field, not just accounting or auditing. Oftentimes when you graduate from college, you get a job and you're pigeonholed. You learn how to do a specific job with this particular role. And there's several roles like this in other fields. You got to see the big picture, too. If you find a job that gives you insight into the big picture, now you get to understand what you do and don't like, what your strengths and weaknesses are. And one problem I see with us is we try to focus on our weaknesses so much. I don't worry with my weaknesses. I focus on enhancing my strengths. Now, now, obviously, that's if the weakness is something that is optional. But you get to figure out what you're good at and what fits you the best. So I recommend for anybody to find some sort of training program, some sort of rotational training program, because now you can figure out what you do like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. Excellent. So from that role, from the training program role, which was a one-year program, you became an auditor. And before we get into that, I just want to quickly go back to your time at Auburn. Were there any other extracurriculars that you were involved in? You mentioned that you had these three part-time jobs, which may not have left any other time for other activities, but you never know. So any clubs, volunteer work, side hustles that in hindsight may have actually helped prepare you for the real world, gave you some valuable transferable skills. And again, Robert, it may have just been having those part-time jobs that helped. The only club that I was in, what is it? The Accounting Honor Society. And I didn't do much there. Here's what I will say. Those jobs are what prepared me. In school, we don't teach some critical skills that people should have. We don't teach people active listening. We don't teach people the art of communication. You have one communication course where you have to do a presentation before your class. That's it. 
They don't teach you how to deal with a difficult coworker, how to deal with someone who's not pulling their weight in a particular curriculum, in a particular project. They don't teach you stuff like that. But since I was working, I actually got my first job when I was 15 years old. I had already been working anyway. But those jobs that I had when I was in college, it taught me that the workforce is nothing more than high school. You just have more money. Fair enough. (laughs) All right. So let's go back to Winn-Dixie. You are an auditor. Did you pick that track? How and why did you get into that particular role? Yeah, so that was a part of the job. When you take the management, the accounting management trainee job, it was you do that role for a while and next you're an auditor. And then the next role from there would be they send you back out into the organization in some other other kind of finance or accounting role. I never made it that far. I left before that. But that was the job. So what did you do then as an auditor? And I'm sure you were one of many in a company as large as Winn-Dixie. It was so much fun. And I really do mean that. Picture this. As an organization, Winn-Dixie had manufacturing facilities where they manufactured, they did ice cream, pizza, eggs, all kinds of things. They also had cookies, candy, soda pop, all kinds of stuff that they manufactured. It was a grocery store. So they had warehousing and merchandising and all that stuff. So what we would do is we would split it up and sometimes we would audit the manufacturing facilities. We got to sample cookies and crackers and stuff. But the most important thing is we were auditing manufacturing facilities. Don't get me wrong. We were also auditing some of the warehouse facilities. You know, how were we actually doing transportation and logistics? How were we getting items in? How were we shipping them out? We were also auditing retail locations. So we would go into the stores and we would audit the store operations. How do we order goods from the store? How do we receive those goods? How do we account for them to make sure that we have everything that we need? You name it, we audited it. We also had 11 stores in the Bahamas. And uh, once a year for a few weeks, I had to go. The hardship assignment. (laughs) It was hard. It was just a rough assignment. I had to go to the Bahamas. (laughs) and stay there on somebody else's dime and actually audit the locations there. But then we also audited the division, which was similar to where I worked when I was the accounting management trainee. We looked at the books there. We looked at everything from how we hire, how we order goods, how we provide the goods and services to customers. Was it at the right amount? You name it, we looked at it. Oh my gosh, I was not expecting you to say that it was fun, but it actually sounds like it was fun. You got to go on a bunch of field trips. I mean, we we traveled all throughout the Southeast and, and to the Bahamas. So after a year in that auditing role, you've already foreshadowed this. You left to join Deloitte and Touche. And Deloitte is one of the world's largest professional services companies. It's one of the big four consulting companies. And you joined as a consultant where you provided internal auditing, business process consulting, and back office accounting services to a variety of different clients in different industries in retail banking, mortgage originations, mortgage servicing, and oil and gas. Why did you decide to take that step, Robert, and how was that environment different from Winn-Dixie? Now, that one was a no-brainer. Deloitte comes knocking, you don't just say no, especially at that age. I actually found a posting in the newspaper of all places. So I was at Winn-Dixie and I really wanted to leave Winn-Dixie. And one Sunday, I just picked up a newspaper because I was going to cut some coupons out because I wasn't making a whole lot of money. Again, another one of those magic moments, right? I thumbed through the employment section and I was like, this doesn't make sense. There's no way Deloitte is advertising in the newspaper. But there it was, Deloitte. And back then, 
Deloitte was more so doing financial statement audits, the numbers, the part that I don't like at that point. But the Jacksonville office was starting this fairly new initiative where they were doing business consulting and business process outsourcing. That's just where companies take parts of their operation that they didn't want to do and outsource it to somebody else and then internal auditing. And so I was the second person, I think, hired in that new division, but it was all because of a newspaper ad. And the other thing that's weird is a lot of times you don't get people coming into Deloitte with experience. They typically hire people directly out of school more often than not. So already having experience, they were really looking for that in that office because it was a new branch that they were starting. So it was just, it was another magic moment. And how was it different? How would you describe the difference in the type of work that you were doing at Deloitte versus the kind of auditing you were doing at Winn-Dixie? Yeah, so I have this theory. I think that if, if you can audit one thing, you can audit anything because it really is just being curious about what's happening and figuring out where something is either working well or where it's broken. It was similar to what I did at Winn-Dixie, except for the location changed, the industry changed, and the people that I was talking to changed. But the overall job was the same. But I mean, I was everywhere. I was traveling. I was working with insurance companies. I remember Merrill Lynch was one of my clients. BP Amico was one of my clients. I had a few clients in Jacksonville, but I was in a different city almost every week. And sometimes it was in an industry that I wasn't familiar with. So I had to get up to speed quickly as to what the industry was, but we were there to solve problems. So was this a much higher paying job? Is that another thing that appealed to you? Oh, it was, a, it was substantially more. Sorry, I almost, I almost <laughs> choked me for a minute. <laughs> it was like night and day. It was like night and day for sure. And what about the vibe of Deloitte versus Winn-Dixie? Was it a bit more like suits and ties versus being able to show up in a button down shirt? Or what was the working atmosphere like? Believe it or not, Winn-Dixie was actually more formal. I used to wear blues, light blue, dark blue. And, and sometimes like a, a, a pinkish button down shirt. I never, I never really wore white shirts. So I remember at Winn-Dixie, I would get these strange looks. And one day somebody said to me, why do you have to be so different? And I'm thinking different. I've got on a tie and a suit and some nice slacks, like, you know, like everybody else. Apparently back then they didn't like you wearing anything but a white shirt. And instead of anyone saying, instead of someone saying something to me, they all talked about me behind my back until somebody finally said something one day. So for a while, I went years without even owning a white shirt because I was just traumatized by that Winn-Dixie experience. <laughs> <laughs> Winn-Dixie was, was a, a lot more formal, but I will say when I was at Deloitte, I wore suits anyway. Something about a suit on your body just felt nice. And, and especially for a young professional, I think it gives you that armor going into meetings with people who are much older than you are, you feel like maybe you look a little bit more mature. Armor is a good way to describe it because you do feel like you have to prove something. And I had an extreme baby face back then and people would say things and some people would be mean enough to try to say them within earshot because they wanted you to feel bad about what you were doing. You were a consultant coming in and you were telling them, you were quote unquote, telling them what to do. And you looked very young. So did you enjoy working at Deloitte? Oh, heck yes. Because yeah. you were there for three years and then you moved into banking, to Everbank. Why did you make that switch? That's another interesting story. So one of my fellow co-workers at Deloitte, she ended up leaving Deloitte and going to Everbank. And it was named something else initially, but she was hired to start a brand new auditing department. And she called me up one day and she said, listen, 
I've taken this job and I, I really want you to come with me. And I said, how much are you paying? Because I already knew I wanted to work with her and I already knew that I liked working with her. So that wasn't the issue at this point because I went from a point of, at Winn-Dixie, I was learning a lot. Now at Deloitte, I was giving a lot back because I had learned a lot. I was learning and giving at the same time. But in this new role, I literally was starting a brand new department where one did not exist. So I asked her, how much are you paying? She told me how much she was paying me. And I said, ooh, I like those numbers. And I said, wait a minute, I'm reporting directly to you. I was reporting directly to her and she reported to the CEO. So I'm in my mid 20s in a role where I'm second in command in a department for someone who reports directly to the CEO. I was like, oh, this is big. I better take this job. But my lesson for me, though, was when you work with someone, never sever that relationship and also do good work for that person or with that person. Because people remember, we often reach back in our past because the people that we've worked with in our past are going to be the people that can help shape our present. The time I became the bureau chief for CNN in China, I needed a, a cameraman and I called up this amazingly talented guy who I'd worked with in Miami and offered him a job to come to China. And he did it. And I'm working with him now. He's helping me get ready for the new podcast. So 100%. The other thing that I love that you raised, Robert, because it wasn't something that I learned to think about until I was in my 40s, because I had been a journalist for the first half of my career. And that is the reporting structure of a company to ask those questions. Who am I a direct report to? Who do you report to? Because having that connection to the CEO means you have a direct pipeline to the decision maker. Absolutely. And and that visibility, when you have visibility in an organization, there's one thing to have ability. But if you have the ability to do the job and you don't have the visibility, you might as well not have the ability. Well, because if you're toiling away in the shadows, it depends upon who you're reporting to, because you could have a supervisor who shines the light on you. Right. But more often than not, they're too busy shining it on themselves and taking credit for your work. So Robert is 100 percent right. You want to make sure that at a certain point in your career, you're earlier rather than later, you're able to have the opportunity to get in front of other people in your company, decision makers, and other clients, depending upon what type of industry you're in. Hard work helps, but hard work alone does not work. So Everbank, where you went to work as an assistant vice president, auditor, is a multi-billion dollar national financial institution with customers in over 45 states. The primary duty and responsibility was to develop and implement the structure protocols and operating standards for the newly created internal audit department. I guess that's what your role was. You were there for three years and then moved to another bank called NetBank. As director of SOX, which I had to look up because, see, I'm not in this field. SOX is Sarbanes-Oxley, which I'm going to have you explain, and internal controls. And I had never heard of NetBank. It doesn't exist anymore. It was the first direct bank, one of the first direct banks in the United States, which meant that it paid higher than average interest rates in exchange for not having physical bank branches. What was it about that job, Robert, that made you want to leave Everbank? Remember that person I told you that left Deloitte and went over to Everbank and then recruited me over to Everbank? Well, she left Everbank and then went to NetBank and then recruited me over (laughs) to NetBank. Here's, Here's the funny part about it. They were directly across the street from one another in Jacksonville, Florida. 
NetBank was the U.S.'s first internet only bank. So no physical branches, but we had primary operations in Jacksonville, but also had some substantial operations in Columbia, South Carolina, Alpharetta, Georgia, and Tampa, Florida. And now Sarbanes-Oxley, so let me explain what that is. I'll say to this day, I actually hate Sarbanes-Oxley, but I'm good at it and I can do it. So I don't know if you remember early 2000s, all the financial scandals. We had Enron, WorldCom, and all of those really huge scandals. Well, after that, what happened was some of our senators got together and said, we've got to stop this from happening again. And so they created Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which essentially said, okay, companies, what you need to do is prove to us that your numbers are accurate and correct. At the end of the day, that's all it is. Now, you have to jump through a lot of hoops that cost a lot of companies millions of dollars to prove that. But that's what I was in charge of at that bank, setting up the infrastructure to prove to, you know, the accounting firms that our numbers were accurate. So here is a headline. In September of 2007, NetBank failed. Yep. What happened, Robert? And I want to I want to also add this footnote, which is that you landed on your feet because a few months before that, in June of 2007, you joined the University of North Florida <laughs> as director of audit. So you hit eject <laughs> and you worked at UNF for almost eight years. So NetBank, here you were in the auditing department. I guess you saw the writing on the wall. I did, unfortunately. But remember now, during that time, we had the mortgage meltdown. So we had a financial crisis back then. But what we ended up doing was the government started giving out these loans or allowing banks to give out loans where they said no doc stated income, meaning you didn't have to provide any documentation to show what your income was. And a lot of banks, including ours, we gave people mortgages that they couldn't afford and then they ended up defaulting on those mortgages and we had to cover them. Along the way, my Sarbanes-Oxley, we found a few things that were, let's just say some accounting errors, legitimate errors in spreadsheets that caused us to have to write down a few million dollars and you take all of that in one quarter, it made for a bad quarter for us and we didn't have enough money to survive. But yeah, you could see the writing on the wall now. So this is your first step in the higher ed as somebody who worked there. And I should have mentioned that at some point before this, you had actually gotten your MBA at the University of North Florida. Oh, you know what? I didn't get it until 2014. Oh, okay. So you got it while you were working at UNF. And then I guess they covered it. And you also began teaching a review course, the CIA review course. I guess that's something with auditing. Yeah, it's the certified internal auditor. It's the premier auditing certification. So I started teaching that at the university. At the same time as you were working there as the director of audit, how was it different, Robert, working as the director of audit at a university? This university had 16,000 students and it had probably still has a law enforcement training company and an art museum. How was it different working in that capacity? in that environment from working in a financial institution? It was the most interesting experience that I've ever had in my life because you are literally auditing everything. Picture a city, which is what a university campus is, right? One minute you could be auditing with the police force investigating a potential crime that has happened The next minute you could be auditing the food venue. The next minute you could be auditing athletics because there's a lot that happens with NCAA. Then you have the technology because we did information technology audits too because most universities have 
substantial research that they do for the government. So you want to make sure that the network is secure and all of that good stuff. So I had my IT auditors working. It was never boring. Just to give our Java junkies a little window into it, if somebody were graduating with an audit degree, is it possible to get an entry level position with an accounting degree fresh out of school? Absolutely. The thing was, I would often hire students. So I started the student internship program there and I would hire students to work in my department to give them some experience. And, you know, obviously for me, I got (laughs) relatively cheap labor. I mean, and I didn't give them paper pushing exercises to do. They had real work. What does it mean to be the director of audit? And where were you in the org chart of, I don't even know what the department would be called. Yeah. So I reported directly to the president and CEO, and then I had a direct reporting line to the board via one of their subcommittees. So you were the big dog. Yeah. Okay. So you were there for almost 11 years and then you moved to another university. You moved to the University of South Alabama as the executive director of internal audit. And you were there for three and a half years. What did that role entail? And why did you make the move from UNF to USA? You know, honestly, it was, it was the same job, just different people. Different title, but same responsibilities? Same responsibilities. The only difference is at USA, I, I had hospitals under me too. So I was doing auditing for healthcare. So we had two hospitals, cancer research facility, and about 50 physician clinics. Now I have all of this up under my purview as well. So what advice do you want to offer our young listeners, Robert, about the kind of upsides and downsides maybe of working in this space in higher ed? You will never be bored. Because there's always something happening in higher ed. However, it's up to you to make the most of it. You can have almost any experience. And I'll give you an example. So at one university, we we built an $80 million stadium while I was there. For me, I'd never seen a project like that happen before. So I was with the contractors. They were showing me blueprints and how that worked. And we were looking at the numbers, making sure that the numbers were okay. I would do field visits and they let me fly the drone. And that's one of your hobbies now. (laughs) Exactly. That's one of my hobbies now. That's what I mean when I say take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. Then when I was at one university, I actually took a couple of semesters worth of Spanish. Just take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves. Yes. And you got your MBA. When you were at the University of North Florida. So you took a big advantage of free tuition. Yeah, they paid for it. I've never had any student loan debt. My undergrad, we paid for cash out of pocket. And then I waited until somebody else could pay for my MBA. What advice do you have for students, Robert, who may be studying accounting or another finance related subject right now in school about the pluses and minuses of going into corporate versus consulting versus private industry versus higher ed. And maybe like the best place to start, is there a best place to start? Does it matter? So I think if you want the biggest bang for your buck, consulting is probably the best place to start, but be prepared to work strenuous hours. You're going to work a lot. A lot of people go to go into consulting for anywhere from three to five years and then get out and go into private industry. What happens when you do that is once you have one of those big four consulting names on your resume, people look at you differently. Now, that actually doesn't necessarily mean that you are different, but people look at you differently. Kind of like how I knew getting a degree in accounting and becoming a CPA, people would look at me differently. 
but I've never really worked as a hardcore number crunching CPA. I understood what it meant to have the ability as well as the visibility and the appearance. Just having the degree doesn't mean anything if you don't know how to talk to people, how to get along with people, how to be honest and how to have integrity. Those are the things that really get you far. Bias is bound to happen no matter where you are. Deal with it. People sit here and say, this is not fair. Life isn't fair. Sometimes you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. Some environments aren't made for you. You could be the smartest person in the room, but still fail. And I think that's when we go back to looking at, I had this great GPA, but you are more than your GPA. To me, some of it also boils down to what I call the two E's, exposure and experiences. What have you been exposed to in life and what are your experiences? Because at some point, especially as you start to rise up in an organization, it's less about your technical skills. In the beginning, it, it is really a lot about your technical skills, but the higher you get, it's less about your technical skills and more about your people skills because your job becomes managing people. Realize that you are more than your GPA. Your GPA is really a short-term metric. It's only going to be with you for the first few years after you graduate. The long-term metric is more so your exposure and your experiences. And then, then my last one is failure is fun because it is. Through trial and error, that's when you get to the, to the good stuff, to the magic. Beautiful. In the meantime, while you were at the University of South Alabama, I think it was right around that time, I could be off, you started your own side hustle called That Audit Guy, and you ended up going all in in August of 2019, so almost exactly four years ago. How hard was it for you, Robert? to make that transition to being a full-time entrepreneur? It was extremely difficult. I started that audit guy as a part-time thing in 2011. And I was just doing it part-time here or there. I will say, I did not like working at the University of South Alabama. And if you Google it, you will see some national news stories that will give you some indication as to why I didn't like it there. Yes. So in an incredibly racist place to work. Let's just say it was imperative that I had to leave that place. Upon leaving it, at first it was going pretty well. And I was, I was laughing at people who said, first time entrepreneurs, you're going to fail at an 80% rate. Most first-time businesses fail. So I was doing pretty good, but I was, I was doing training and I was doing presenting and keynote speaking in person. Now we all know what happened in February of 2020. Things got really bad for me. I made hardly any money in 2020. At that point, I had to move back in with my mom and I was 40 plus years old. I moved out when I was 22 and hadn't been home since, right? That was eye-opening, but I spent the time and took the time to build the practice back up. Took a couple of years to really get some good footing. By the time 2021 came around, it was a little bit better, but still not good. By the time 2022 came around, it was pretty, pretty good, but still not great. This year ended up being even better Still not exactly where I wanted to go, but you have to look at small progress and you have to think, here I am without an employer being my own employer, going out and doing everything. As an entrepreneur, you do everything. You do your marketing. You do your selling. You actually perform the service that you offer. So it's all on you to go out and hustle. But I will say it was the best experience of my life because Everything that I had done prior led me to that point. I run three podcasts now where not only am I the on-air personality, I am the producer behind the scenes. I distribute it. I chop up my clips. I do all my social media. I'll have a team once I get a little bit bigger. But I also still do auditing for some clients. 
So for those clients, I'm doing the work. I partner with quite a few people. I collaborate with quite a few people. And so I work well with people who I met years ago. Some of them I met during the pandemic, but it's all about those relationships. I even partner with people who should be my competitors. So fellow trainers, we'll, we'll funnel business to one another. I'll get a call from someone and say, hey, we need some training. How'd you hear about me? They heard about me from some people that I collaborate with that do the exact same thing that I do. It's, it's crazy. You're also the author of Ask Better Questions, Get Better Answers, Perform Better Audits. Rather than digging into ask better questions for audits, because some of our listeners may not be in that industry, what advice do you have for our Java junkies, Robert, no matter what their major, as to how they can ask better questions? This is the trick of the book. There's an audit slant on it, but it's really advice that anybody can use because Asking questions and being curious is everybody's superpower if you do it right. So the the first piece of advice I would give is be curious. If you're always curious, there are a few things that will happen. People will always be interested in you by proxy because you're curious about them. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I'll tell a real quick story. So when I worked for Deloitte, I was a pretty shy person. And We would always have to go to these events and hobnob with some of the wealthy people that were our clients. And I was poor, so I didn't know anything about half the stuff they talked about, right? Vacations here and there and all this other good stuff. And so I developed this tactic where I was going to ask them everything about themselves and just keep them talking so that they wouldn't ask me anything. Now, that was a tactic that I developed because I was scared shitless. And I remember the first time I did it, The partner called me into his office and I thought I was in trouble. And I sat down and I was like, hey, man, what did I do? Am I in trouble? And he's like, no, you were the life of the party. Now, mind you, I didn't talk at the party at all. I just asked everybody questions. What I learned was that when you ask people questions about themselves, they become interested in you because you appear to be and you are interested in them. Now, there's a book that I'd recommend. It's called How to Click. It's by Dr. Rick Kirshner. He says the exact same thing in that book. I had no idea that that's what I was doing back then. So so my first piece of advice is be curious. Be curious about people, but also be curious about things. Because I was curious about things, a la when I was at Winn-Dixie, why couldn't we get this inventory to balance? I ended up creating this worksheet that ended up adding value to the organization. Second piece of advice is realize that there's absolutely no such thing as a stupid question. Oftentimes what we do when we're young and even when we get older, we become afraid to look stupid in front of people. I don't mind if you think that I'm stupid. I don't care because it's not for you. It's for me. If I don't know it and I need to know it, then I need to ask it. But here's the other thing that I teach people. And I started reframing this whole stupid question notion. If someone looks at you in a condescending manner because you have asked them a question that they deem to be stupid, shame on them. And here's why. If I want to know something, I'm going to pick the smartest person I know to ask this question of. And if I pick you, I'm actually giving you a compliment because I believe you can answer this question. So for you to look at me in a condescending manner shows that there's absolutely something wrong with you because you don't even understand the dynamic that just took place. So. If you've ever looked at someone who's asked you a question and thought, that's a stupid question, you're probably the stupid person because they chose who they thought was the smartest person to answer their question. They gave you a compliment and you pissed on their compliment. I agree with a lot of what you've said. The only thing that I would add is that, especially for those listeners who are doing like these, informal coffee chats to learn about what somebody does. Do your homework ahead of time. Don't waste your time and their time asking questions that you could answer if you just went on their LinkedIn profile. 
use that precious time that you have with that person to learn about things that aren't on their profile or to clarify things that are on their profile. I would just say in that kind of specific case, go into these conversations having done a little homework. Oh, I agree 100% with that. Now, you don't go in blindly. There's a difference between being uninformed and being informed when you go and ask people questions. But yeah, but I think people who are naturally curious will do that due diligence, though. So it's still all about being curious with you 100%. Don't walk in blind. Yeah. Yeah. So I have two final questions real fast, Robert. And these are questions I try to ask all T4C guests. We've already talked about the magic, but I would love it if you could share a time in your professional life when you failed. Maybe you just dropped the ball. Maybe you screwed up in some way. And this isn't, I'm not asking you this question as a way to embarrass you, but rather to empower our listeners to appreciate that we all screw up. And the most important thing is how to persevere. And in your case, if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. Failure is a part of the process. Anybody who tells you that they've never failed, run. Run. Either they've not had enough experience or they're lying to you. So we've all failed. But you know what? I remember one particular instance where I failed a fellow employee. And I've written about this on LinkedIn a lot. I've talked about it. So a lot of times in any department, but specifically in audit departments, there's a hierarchy. And you bring in the new person and there's a certain set of things that they have to do before they can move on to the next task. Every profession is like that, right? You experienced it in journalism. So I hired this one young guy and I liked him. It was something about him that I just liked. He came in with this fire. And this young man told me that what he wanted to do was he wanted to write reports. Now, every time you do an audit, your end product is some sort of a report that goes to everybody, the board of directors, the executive management team, everyone. So I got this young kid that's telling me that's what he wants to do right now. I see the look on your face. And I'm sitting here thinking, Absolutely not. He pressed on. And I remember I was having a conversation with a friend. A friend said to me, what harm could it do if you monitored his activities while you let him do it? And I thought about it and I was like, okay, the upside is I could find somebody who actually was good at it. The downside is he could be horrible at it. But if I monitored it, I would catch it before everything went out. So I gave this kid an opportunity, blew me away. Now, here's what I found out. In a good way? Blew you away? In a good way. Here's what I found out, though. He majored in like English lit or something like that. And he minored in accounting because his mom told him he'd never get a job in English lit. So he knew how to write. Here was my big takeaway, though. I almost failed this guy in his career because writing reports is, is a big part of the job. And if you know how to do that, then you know how to communicate with other people, both in writing and verbally. You have to be able to gather a lot of information and boil it down to where almost anyone could understand it, which is why you typically had to go through years and years of of training and on-the-job experience before you could do it. He ended up skipping all of that. But for me, I started thinking about other people that as a leader, I had failed by not listening to them and putting them through this Here's this rubric that you have to go through. I realized that in my career, I'd actually failed as a leader, other people as well, not just him. And so it taught me a valuable lesson on really looking at people for their individual strengths outside of this box that I'm putting. You still need a box, right? Because you still need some way to measure people. But I started developing my employees in a totally different way after that because I literally was failing this young man in his career. So he was a superstar. Oh, he was a superstar. But you know what? Thinking back, I'm not sure if he was really a superstar. He had this one ability that he was good at. And it was up to me as a leader to try and figure out how to capitalize on that one ability that he had instead of focusing on all of these other areas. And so I started looking 
And there were a few other people in the department that I was failing as a leader too. And mm. so I, I retooled my entire approach to managing people. I love that story. Thank you. So final T for C question. If you could go back to college, Robert, go back to University of North Florida or rather to Auburn University at Montgomery and do it all over again. But based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I definitely would have majored in math, minored in accounting. I would have spent more time developing even deeper relationships with the people that I worked with between those three jobs that I had. Because at the end of the day, the relationships that you establish, your ability to actually see an end goal and solve problems counts more than any of the other stuff. Now, the other stuff is important. Don't get me wrong, because you have to have a baseline. But I've not done any hardcore accounting work in years. Most of it has been figuring out what the problems were, figuring out who was the best people to solve the problems that we had, and then being a traffic cop and directing activities. So I would have made sure that I established really good relationships with people. Robert is the host of three podcasts on LinkedIn. Robert, do you want to share when they drop and what they're called and you're absolutely going to want to give this man a follow on LinkedIn. So the first podcast I'll mention is called The Friday Fraudster. Every Friday, 2 p.m. Central Standard Time, we take fraud cases that are in the news and we just discuss them. What went wrong? How we could have maybe avoided what happened? That's a, I, I love that one. It's just fun. The other one is called Audit Bites. It typically runs from January until June and then August until December. And it's all about auditing. I give tips to auditors on how to be better auditors. The third one is called Good Morning LinkedIn. We typically take August off, but it's, so it's an 11-month podcast. We talk about current topics in the workplace, in the environment. It's every Saturday morning at 10.30 a.m. Central Standard Time. Nothing to do with auditing, just pure, this is what's happening in our world today. Fantastic. Again, give Robert a follow on LinkedIn. You will not regret it. Robert, I want to thank you so much for making time for Decaf Coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was wonderful. And I just want to thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org, or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.